0: And uh, hopefully inside your service sheets is uh, this outline here of where we're heading as we continue our series in Colossians. We're up to Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 24, which is page 1183 of the Church Bibles, 1183. And as you're finding that outline and uh, the, the Bible passage, let me ask you this, do you have a Christian hero Uh, a a Christian uh, gospel worker of which uh, you would say you are a fan of their work, you admire their outstanding gospel work. Well, let me share with you a hero of a friend of mine, uh, Justin, and if you were to ask him for his gospel hero, he would say, I am a fan of Selwyn Sexton. Now, this is uh, how he describes it. He says, it's not likely a name you've heard of before. There are no podcasts, no web pages, no SelwynSextonMinistries.com, no books, no Facebook groups, no fan clubs. But in 1979, Selwyn was perhaps a 40-plus-year-old missioner and evangelist. He came to my school in Sydney and he preached the gospel. And as he spoke about Jesus, he did so without any eloquence or sophistry, or without any dynamism or reputation. He had no marketing, no hype. There was no bombastic or shocking nature to his work. There was no warm-up, no music. I don't even even remember any particular wit or wisdom or humour or insight from him. It was all very ordinary. Well, there's his hero, Selwyn Sexton, a fairly ordinary one, don't you think? Selwyn Sexton, a a nice enough guy, a, a faithful guy is perhaps the word we'd use, but surely he would struggle to make many hero lists. He's just so ordinary. Especially next to some of the extraordinary gospel heroes that we have. Uh, who's your hero? Uh, perhaps for some of us it's uh, John Stott, uh, his peerless uh, work in exposition, now uh, bringing the Bible back to the people uh, freeing us so that we could understand the Bible for ourselves. Or someone like C.S. Lewis with his soaring intellect and storytelling abilities. Is he your hero or John Piper who uh, when he preaches it's like napalm on cold hearts or perhaps it's Don Carson with his rigor and his uh, ridiculously long sentences or Tim Keller with his insights into human experience and bringing the gospel to bear on it or perhaps uh, for the the younger generation it's someone like Mark Driscoll with his capacity to reach a lost generation of men who is your gospel hero I suspect in such esteemed company as some of those I've just listed and they are esteemed because they are of great blessing to the Christian community worldwide. But in such esteemed company, someone like Selwyn Sexton looks like a bit of a struggler, doesn't he? Don't you think? He's not going to trouble the biographers, is he? But to dismiss the likes of Selwyn Sexton in the glow of brighter lights is to miss how God is powerfully at work in our world. Selwyn Sexton is a struggler and as such we struggle to see the profound power of his ministry, the profound fruit his service of the gospel has produced. And my friend Justin, who is a fan of Selwyn Sexton, wrote to him in 2001, some 21 years after Selwyn came to his school. This is what he said. Dear Selwyn, you'll have no idea who I am, but I wanted to write to you and thank you for your important part in my faith in Jesus Christ. Sometime around 1979 you came to my school in Eastwood in Sydney and explained the entire, to the entire school Jesus' death. You made it very simple. You had a simple illustration and yet God used you very powerfully that afternoon. I understood for the first time that Jesus died for me. I can remember where I was sitting and how I felt about it. I was nine years old. I'm writing to you now for two reasons. Firstly, to thank you for your service to me. And secondly, uh, is that next week, as now the youth minister of my church, I'm taking some 100 youth away on a camp where we will be looking at the death of Jesus. As we do, I'll be thinking specifically of the, uh, the time when I first understood the cross 21 years ago because of your work. And my prayer for these children, these youth, is that they will experience what I experienced because of you. And so I write this to encourage you to keep going, Selwyn. Selwyn Sexton is a struggler. And it's easy, isn't it, to think what we need as a church and what we need across the United Kingdom is more heroes and less strugglers. Then the gospel would really make an impact in this land. Then we might have the confidence of Paul's claim. You remember it earlier from Colossians in chapter 1, verse 6. Do you see his claim all over the world? The gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying all over the world. It is taking the world by storm. Well, maybe if we had more heroes and less strugglers, that would be true. And I suspect for this fledgling Christian community in Colossae, for whom Paul was their hero, their champion in the faith, though they'd never met him, this same fear uh, would have crept in for them. As Paul heard of them and heard of their faith and hope and love in Christ Jesus, as he rejoiced over them and wrote to them to encourage them to see just how powerfully God was at work in their lives, as they heard all that from Paul, they also heard that their hero was a struggler, a shackled man under the thumb of the might of the Roman Empire, a victim of the schemes of the Jewish authorities who had plotted to put him away and were plotting to put him away permanently. It seemed uh, very likely that the forces uh, around him, not their hero, not, nor his gospel, was winning the day. Paul was a struggler. And so Paul writes, as we continue this letter, concerned that they don't lose heart or hope. He wanted them not just to receive Christ. Remember the key verse in this letter as we've seen in recent weeks in chapter 2 verse 6, he wanted them not just to receive Christ but to, to walk in him, to carry on. And so now in his letter as we continue in verse 24 he moves to quell their fears that perhaps uh, perhaps this movement, this gospel movement was not all it was cracked up to be. He moves to, to quell that. Not so they'll heroise him, not so that they'll think big of Paul but so they too may rejoice in the wonderfully unexpected way God is progressing the gospel in his world because Paul knows that a church full of strugglers does not mean that there is a glitch in the system. He knows that God is causing the gospel to bear fruit and multiply in this world through suffering and struggling servants of the gospel like Paul and like Selwyn Sexton. And so what Paul does in the passage before us tonight is he is going to detail for us his own role in the progress of the gospel and he's going to show us what it looks like to be a servant of the gospel. Three key things we're going to see from him tonight, three aspects of being a gospel servant. And the first of them, as you can see on the outline there, is in verse 24, the servant of the gospel suffers. Have a look at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, I've got to be honest, as I started to prepare this week, this is one of the more difficult verses in the New Testament, or at least for me it was. And to be honest, at the start of the week, this was my theory, uh, just, to, just to be honest with you, this, this is my plan. Let's get through this verse and perhaps this passage and then we can get back on to the wonderful stuff that's yet to come in this letter. But the Spirit of God is no fan of skimming over the word that he speaks to us. And so as I looked at it again this week, I found here a very personal challenge to change my whole mindset as to what a servant of the gospel is about. Three challenges, even here in this first verse. And the first of them is this. Yes, the servant of the gospel suffers, and we'll get to that in a moment, but first see what Paul says before that. A suffering servant, that's who Paul is, what's he doing? What emotion bubbles up in him as he, as he suffers, as he's in prison in Rome, as he's perhaps frustrated for all the things he could be doing if he wasn't stuck there? What bubbles up? Joy. The suffering servant rejoices. And let me tell you, for a bunch of reasons this week, that was very important to hear. Because there is great joy in being a servant of the gospel. Great joy. But see what the joy is in. Paul doesn't say here, now that I've become a a servant of the gospel, I rejoice in my status and my authority. Rejoice in the dignity that that affords me. Now that I've become a servant of the gospel, I, I rejoice in my reputation. Or I rejoice in my financial security as an ordained Anglican minister. No, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for this gospel. I rejoice in suffering for the gospel because the gospel itself for Paul is joyful. He rejoices because Jesus Christ has by his death presented Paul wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation as we saw in verse 22. My joy, says Paul, in serving the gospel is an expression of the joy I have in believing the gospel. I rejoice because of the privilege of what I'm in on I serve the gospel, the gospel of the king. What a job. And I rejoice because of the goal of this suffering for the gospel. It is for you, says Paul. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But here at the start of Paul's description of gospel services, he speaks of the servant suffering. Realise how remarkable the community you are a part of is. You are part of a community of people who rejoice in serving others, even at great cost. That's pretty unusual, don't you think, in the world that we live in, to be part of a community of people who rejoice in serving even at cost. I was thinking about that this week. I'm in the midst of leading some of our small group leaders through some training called the Growth Groups course. These are people who lead weekly groups who have to prepare Bible studies and now I'm asking them to turn up again on another night and to be further trained. Huge cost, time-wise. And that they are doing it for the very reason Paul says here. They are doing it at great cost for others. This is a remarkable community. So, there's the first challenge. The suffering servant rejoices. But secondly, and perhaps most obviously, the suffering servant suffers. There are times, I suspect, even when rejoicing in the gospel work that we have to do together here, rejoicing in the privilege of being able to serve the King of Heaven and Earth, uh, when we feel, why does it have to cost so much? Why is service of the Gospel marked by suffering, maybe not physical for many of us, but suffering of loss, all sorts of loss, financial, time, opportunities, a Saturday night if you work with the kids' church. Why? Because, says Paul, this is the character of such service. The servant of the gospel will suffer. It's not an accident. It's not a glitch in the system. Paul's suffering as a servant is is well documented. You read any of his letters and you're going to hear about his suffering. Again and again he tells us about it and not to sort of elicit some sort of sympathy so we feel sorry for him. And he goes even further here in this verse. Not only will he tell us he's suffering for the gospel, he, he speaks of sharing in Christ's suffering. You see what he says in verse 24, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. To make up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What? What could possibly be lacking from Christ's suffering? What Christ did on the cross? What could possibly be short of the mark when it comes to what he did for us on that first Good Friday? Well, Paul doesn't mean here that the blood Jesus shed on the cross or his body given on the cross is somehow inadequate, that there's more to be done. Uh, we saw that last time we were looking at the letter together. Back in verse 18, we were told that he had made peace through his blood. We were told that it was his physical body that is able, that is able to reconcile all things in heaven and earth to God. There's nothing lacking. No, the sense in which Christ's afflictions are lacking must be understood in the context of what we've seen in this letter. You remember what we saw two weeks ago? There we were told in this uh, glorious description of Jesus Christ in verses 15 to 20 that he is over all things. But we also saw that there is a very real sense, even this side of the cross, that all things are not yet reconciled to him. All things are not yet at peace with him. You live even five minutes in this world and you will know that. But we can be confident, such is the once and for all decisive nature of Christ's work on the cross, we can be sure that he will finish that work. That Christ will be all in all. But, and this is the key for us in verse 24, the effects of Christ's death in all things have not yet been fully realised, have they? There's more work to be done. His afflictions aren't lacking in the sense of not being enough to achieve God's purposes for all things but they are lacking in the sense that they have not yet reached their full effect. And here is where the suffering servant of the gospel comes in. Paul is saying the work of Christ on the cross, his afflictions on the cross are now having their effect on this whole world through who? Through suffering servants. And so those who by faith in Christ Jesus join themselves to Jesus, who are united with Jesus, who become part of his body, are also united to him in his sufferings. What God began to do through Christ's physical body, he now continues to do through Christ's body here on earth, the church. And this will go on and on in the church until Christ fulfills his purpose in all things. And so take this in this church which God calls the body of Christ. This body has a DNA. If you were to cut us open, the the blood that we would bleed is this, the, the pattern that God has set in this body is the pattern that his son sets. Suffering brings life. Christ as the first suffering servant, the ultimate suffering servant, sets the pattern which we all follow. Suffering brings life. There's a big challenge here, isn't there? Surely this should impact our mindset and expectations as we serve one another and we serve the gospel. It's hard to accept though, even harder to do. Ours is a culture, as we saw in that video earlier, that prizes and guards comfort and ease. So as a culture we, we shelter ourselves from suffering And when we do uh, suffer, when we find ourselves in that situation, we, we long to be back in the place of comfort and ease. That's where we belong, isn't it? You know that feeling? If I'm stretched, something must be wrong. If I'm exhausted, something's wrong. If I'm burdened, something, well, something needs to change. And so we make plans to move away from cost towards comfort. But brothers and sisters in Christ, remember who you are. You are united to Christ, bound to him by faith, united to the suffering servant. And so I reckon verse 24 says, we must stop asking why the cost, as if something were wrong. Why the exhaustion? Why the lack? Why the frustrations? Why the cost? Why? You're in Christ, that's why. And we must stop yearning for ease. And yearn instead to be in fellowship with him with all that will mean. We must learn to count the cost, but not as those who are dismayed at the rising price of serving the gospel. Now we must learn, as Paul is doing here, to count the cost with joy. How easy that is to say, how hard it is to do. Therefore, how much more work our King has yet to do on our hearts. But here in verse 24 is, is I think, the key of how this might be possible, how we might reach a stage where we have this mindset that Paul has here. God has not set in train a sort of a, a pattern of fruitless suffering, calling us to suffer for no reason. If you're wondering why the cost of serving is so high, look at what the cost buys and for who. Paul says, I rejoice in suffering for what? For you, Colossians. For the sake of the body, the church, that's the joy set before him. As it was for his king, as Jesus endured the shame and the pain of the cross, it was for the joy set before him, the joy that we saw last time of being reconciled again with his creation. So Paul's perspective is shaped by this. Death brings life to others. Cost to me brings gain to others. My suffering brings fruit to others. And so, as you serve in this church family, what is the joy set before you? What are you in it for? Recognition? A sense of identity? This is who I am? Perhaps assuaging guilt? Paul says if these or many other reasons are, are your motivation for serving, you're not a servant of the gospel, you're a servant of yourself. The gospel servant suffers for the sake of the church. Now in a few moments we will see what the fruit of our suffering will produce in detail but for now heed the challenge of this first verse. Test your heart. The servant of the gospel rejoices in suffering for the sake of others. So there's the first key aspect of gospel service. Here's the second one in verses 25 to 27. The servant of the gospel fulfills God's plan. This suffering and cost is to be expected as we've seen because it is the character of Christ's body but there's even more to it than that. This suffering actually is fulfilling God's plan, his purposes for all things. Now, Paul says to the Colossians as they hear news of him in prison in Rome are under their thumb. He says, don't look at me and think that the Romans or the Jewish rulers are holding sway at this moment as if things have gone wrong. This is as per plan. In fact, he says in verse 25, I've been commissioned for this very thing, enlisted by God for this purpose. Paul says to the Colossians, realise God has called me to do this. I'm the apostle to the nations. He sent me to speak his word to the nations and it's going to involve suffering. And what's this word he speaks? Do you see it there in verse 25? It is God's word in all its fullness. Paul's job is to announce to the nations God's final full and decisive word. So what is this word, this filled up word, this word that lacks nothing, a word that is powerful enough in God's plans to bring life to all things? Well, Paul says in verse 26, it's a mystery. That's what it is. It's a secret that's actually been hidden for ages and generations. People have come and gone, families have come and gone, kingdoms have been raised up and fallen again and it has remained a mystery. Yes, along the way, there's been hints and shadows of what this full word really is, uh, to people like Abraham, to Israel as a nation, to the great King David. But all the while, it remained hidden. Though God continued to speak through the prophets in many and various ways through ages and generations, though they knew God's purposes were somehow hidden under all of this and all the experiences of God's people. It, Though they searched intently, longing to know this mystery, it still remained hidden for so long. But, says Paul, not now. Now is the time when this word in all its fullness is unveiled. To who? Well, to the Lord's people. And Paul, the suffering servant, was commissioned to speak this full word to the ends of the earth. So what is it, this mystery, this word, this... Hidden plan, the plan for things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. His, his plan for Yorkshire. His plan for you. What's his plan? Well, says Paul in verse twenty-six, it's a glorious plan. It's a it's a rich plan. It's a great plan. It's so good. At this point in the passage, I'm thinking to myself, yes, Paul, but just spit it out. What is the plan? Well, verse 27, well, it's Christ. Christ, the one by whom, through whom and for whom all things hold together. Christ, the king, the mystery is Christ. Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says you you need to see what's happened here in in this age that you live in, Colossians. You need to realise that Israel's promised king the one they have been waiting for for generations and ages who will reign forever, Christ the King. He's not just King of Israel. He's King in Colossi, in Yorkshire, in India, in Uzbekistan, in Australia. He is King in you. That's God's plan. Unveiled and the servant of the Gospel has the job of presenting that message to those who would receive him by faith. And in receiving Christ by faith, laying claim to the wonderful hope that Christ in me brings. The hope of glory, Paul calls it. The hope, as we saw back in verse 22, that he will reconcile me to God. That there will come a day when he, the king, will present me before his father holy in his sight, without blemish and with no one who can accuse me. The hope of reconciled relationship with my king. And so like the Colossians, I think Paul would say to us tonight, realise the joy of the age you live in. The secret is out and it is racing around this globe. God is in the business of making all things new through this king. And so realise what you're in on as you take part as a servant of the gospel. Whatever small role you might think you have, if you feel like you're more like a Selwyn Sexton type figure in God's great plan, Have this big vision for your role, a role that may seem weak and insignificant and perhaps costly. As you prepare craft to teach kids of God's love on a Sunday, as you meet one-to-one with a student, as you sit and chat with someone at Friday Club or Oasis or after this service, as you sit down to prepare your Bible study at the end of a day, as you lead on the CE table or help at gig, if you can't see what difference it makes, and why it's worth the cost, which is not small. Lift your eyes to the profound and ongoing work of Christ in a person's life. Fix your eyes on the hope of glory, the hope of countless in assembly before him and thinking, I was in on that work. And so with this clear vision of the hope of glory, we come briefly to the final key aspect of the role of the gospel servant from verse 28 onwards. The servant Of the gospel proclaims Christ. What does the servant of the gospel do with this vision? Verse 28 We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Knowing the mystery has been unveiled, knowing the mystery is Christ in you, we admonish everyone. We warn them, we challenge them, calling for change, because we know when the mystery of all things is revealed in Christ, we know that no one who's, who knows him, their life can, can't remain the same. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is the mighty and constant agent of change in our world. And so we admonish one another. We call for change. And we teach everyone because our thinking and understanding about all things must be reordered in light of Christ. Once he is known, everything we knew changes. And so what does the servant of the gospel do? He, him we proclaim to everyone. And just in case you're thinking to yourself, well, I can see why some people do that. I can see why the Apostle Paul had that job and perhaps Paul Williams has that job and maybe there's certain people who have the job of proclaiming Christ. If you're wondering who amongst us is called upon to serve the gospel in this way, in this church family, while there are some set aside to lead the task of proclaiming him, now flick forward to Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. There you will see a verse that almost repeats word for word what we've just read in chapter 1, verse 28. It speaks of what we do together, not just what somebody up the front does. We let the word of Christ dwell richly. We proclaim Christ to one another. We teach and admonish one another. In our songs, in our conversations, in our activities, in our relationships, we must be about this for one another. Having God's full word, the word of Christ, dwelling richly among us. As we teach and admonish one another, as we have conversations across the way after this service, we need to be talking about more than the weather. Don't worry, it's going to rain tomorrow. I've fixed it for you. Don't bother talking about it. Proclaim Christ. And know this work for one another. Know its nature. What do you expect it to be like, seeing what we've already seen from Paul? Have a look at verse 29 and then again in chapter 2, verse 1. What's the nature of this work that we are about to one another? It's a struggle. Proclaiming him to one another is hard work. Do you feel that? Much easier to talk about the weather after this service. To persist in proclaiming Christ, as Paul does for the Colossians. He says of it literally in chapter 2, verse 1. He says it, it's agony. It's agony. It's exhausting, it's painful, it's tiring. It is a work in which you will grow weary, says Paul. But as we close, uh, here are two things to keep in your heart as you struggle for one another in proclaiming Christ. I've got four of them there, but two of them are going to wait for next week. But here's two to have in your heart as you think about whether it is worth struggling to proclaim Christ. Verse 29 tells you it is a powerful struggle. Paul says, to this end I labour, Struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. And gospel work can be hard and painful work. Uh, Just a few months ago I met with a guy in uh, my hut that I work in uh, across the way and uh, he came uh, to chat to me about a problem that he'd had for about a decade which, to be honest, to me seemed insurmountable. Insurmountable. Uh, As he spoke and as I thought about how to respond, I felt completely lost. still do. Completely helpless. As I thought about it afterwards and I started to pray about it and I'm telling God I feel powerless, the response I'm getting from God is this, guess what, Doby? you are. How slow of heart and mind you are. The gospel is his power, not mine. And his power, you remember who he is, we saw that last time, he is the king. So struggle on, he says, with his incredible energy at work in you as you proclaim him. And rejoice as you struggle. God is at work in exhausted servants. And here's the final one. Not only is it a powerful struggle, it is a purposeful struggle. As Paul toils at proclamation, and as we do that for one another, realize the profound outcome of such gospel work. You see it there, verse 2? My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. As we proclaim him to one another, as the word of Christ dwells richly among us, see the purpose. The gospel that we speak to one another is for our hearts. God's aim as you proclaim Christ to your brother or sister is to fill their heart with comfort and courage. That's literally what Paul is saying here when he says encouraged of heart. Imagine that. Imagine a church family filled with people whose hearts are comforted and whose hearts are swelling with courage for bold deeds for him. What a thought. There's a reason to struggle. Not only is it for our hearts, though, it's for our unity. He says here this word of Christ that we speak to one another literally, he says it will knit us together in love love for one another. You want fellowship with those around you. You want to grow in connection and your commitment and care and love for those around you. Proclaim Christ to your brother and your sister. Proclaim him to one another in your small groups. When you meet together, wherever you may be, knit one another together in love. And finally this, it is for our hearts, it's for our unity and it is for our assurance. How precious it is to know and understand God's purposes for the nation's to know you are clear about what God is doing for you in Christ. What deep confidence comes from knowing Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now there's a wonderful purpose and worthy of a struggle. And so let me ask you, is this what you are seeking from those who serve you? Are you seeking those who will suffer to fulfil God's purpose by proclaiming Christ to you? If it is, I hope it is. Please pray that that be so. And let me ask, is this what we're expecting from and giving to one another in this place? Again, please pray that it be so. May we be a church filled with strugglers. Let's pray.